You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend? It's a quiet day, Leslie. A quiet, quiet, (laughs) quiet day. Yes, Hell Week is officially here, and as we record, it's been, well, batshit crazy. Uh, It's Thursday afternoon now. Uh, We've seen a very, very active morning. NBC is done. CBS is at least done with their bubble decisions. The CW is almost entirely done as well. Fox and ABC have yet to join the fray. There's still Friday to come, the true hell day, which doesn't sound like it'll be as hellish, at least from this point. But Why would you say that? Why would you do that? It's either way. It's going to be a different it's going to be a different year. We're going to talk a little bit more about pilots being in consideration for off cycle consideration. Uh, We've kind of hinted at that a little bit in some of the episodes leading up to Upfronts. And we'll talk much more about it next week, I'm sure. And a little more about it in our second segment. Indeed. Do we want to get down to business? Because I know that every second that we spend recording this podcast is a second that you could be spending either writing news or or celebrating something. I see what you did there. So, yes, there will be some celebrations in my household this weekend and tonight. Anyway. Anyway, well, let's lead off with the week's top headlines. Number one. In streaming and cable renewals, Upload is returning for its third season on Amazon. You know, there were two Greg Daniels shows that debuted in 2020. It was Upload, which didn't have much fanfare at all. And then there was Space Force, with with which reteamed The Office's Greg Daniels with Steve Carell, came with a million dollar per episode payday for Carell. And yeah, that one got canceled after two. So if you voted that Upload would would outlast Space Force, give yourself a point or take a shot, whatever you, whenever, whatever you're listening to, whatever time of day you're listening to this, you be the judge on how you get that right. It's never the wrong time to celebrate. And elsewhere, Courtney Cox horror comedy Shining Veil is also returning for its second season on Stars. Wish I remembered how the first season of that one ended or much of anything about a show that I absolutely totally watched almost all of and or maybe all of i don't even know i reviewed it whatever (laughs) it ended somewhere i don't remember where i think you you might have mentioned before that it was uh there might be a lot of tv going on right now especially in may right ever so much tv so anyway in casting game of thrones veteran Maisie williams has joined the apple fashion drama the new look which stars ben mendelson and juliette binoche Oscar winner Ariana DeBose has booked a recurring role on season four of HBO's Westworld, which is slated to return in June, just in case anyone remembers anything at all that happened in the third season. Nope. (laughs) Or season two. Nope. Limitless star Jake McDorman, who I like to think of as Greek or Murphy Brown star Jake McDorman, will star opposite Betty Gilpin in Damon Lindelof and Tara Hernandez's peacock drama Mrs. Davis. It's a good uh, week of castings. That's a good good little group there. And rounding out headlines and big development news, Peacock is teaming with the original screenwriter and producers behind Reality Bites to update the Gen X favorite. Good Girls creator Jenna Bands is also attached as executive producer. Dan, this was a THR exclusive. And guess what I was listening to when I was writing that? Uh, were you listening to My Sharona? Damn right. That is remains one of the best film soundtracks out there. So it is good. it is a great soundtrack and also a reminder that at the time at which Reality Bites came out, I was definitely not 
Gen X. That was back when Gen X was a slightly older cohort and people who were my age were Gen Y. Then they eliminated Gen Y and I got folded in as Gen X. So I'm actually maybe kind of looking forward to this because I can pretend to relate, which I totally couldn't when the movie came out. Yeah, this is getting a lot of heat on social media, but I think it's important to remember that the screenwriter is attached to write this update as well. And she wrote this movie when she was in her 20s. So I'm guessing she's coming at this from a different perspective at this point in her career. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I think it's it, that, you know, this is being made into a TV series. I think that the movie itself is very, very loosely structured and all of that. And I think that we are at a point now where we're into probably our fifth or sixth or tenth year of the increased erasure of Generation X as a generation to begin with. And so you see all of these stories about how, uh, I don't know, <laughs> the baby boomers have had enough time running our country and it's time to turn things over to millennials. And there, there's a whole generation of us who are just sitting going, wait, so did we not get a bite at the apple? Why, <laughs> why did they decide that we don't matter? Anyway, uh, I understand, though, all of the people who grew up being very, very annoyed by Reality Bites. That's kind of the thing about Reality Bites as a property, is that the people who loved it and felt it resembled their lives loved the hell out of it. Anyone who felt like it was attempting to represent a generation, but its experience did not in any way represent certain people, really, really hated that movie. But on the other hand, to make a TV show in this landscape, you don't need everybody to love you. You just need a couple million people to be passionate about you. So, yay. Number two. As we've mentioned a couple times, Upfront presentations are set for next week. We are recording this on Thursday afternoon, and there are still some bubble shows out there, some pickups still to come, etc., etc. Next week's podcast, incidentally, will be entirely us attempting to dig out from the actual Upfronts. But as we lead up to Upfronts, it's time for Leslie to break down both what we actually know and what we're still waiting to find out. Let's go in... Let's go in alphabetical order, because that's how you wrote it down on our outline. Uh, <laughs> what's up at ABC, Leslie? Well, everything. Um, it, like I said in the intro to this, this week's episode, ABC and Fox have really yet to join the fray of the crazy. Um, last week, ABC gave a Friday news dump cancellation special to Queens and Promised Land, and it's been radio silence uh, from the Disney back network ever since. So the big question heading into all of its decisions and, and the presentation next week is if they're really still going to be the female focused network that we know them to be. So we know if they've got four Thursday night football games coming onto their schedule, we know they're losing dancing with the stars to Disney plus. So what are they going to fill that void with? Is it still going to be female skewing stuff? Are they going to pick up a lot more male leaning of pilots? They have an LA law reboot in the, in the works with some of the original stars, for example, you know, so, you know, and then there's a couple of other bubble shows. You know, the cast of the Connors all have new deals, but there's no renewals. Will a million little things get a chance to stand on its own without being compared side by side with This Is Us, which is, of course, ending its run this month after six seasons? Then you've got, you know, the the rookie spinoff, which appears like a slam dunk to go. Uh, the network has the biggest broadcast show of the year in terms of the rookie class with Abbott Elementary, but the rest of its slate is largely forgettable. The Wonder Years is well-reviewed, still on the bubble, but likely because of Fred Savage's firing as a producing director, which, again, that was another news dump from late Friday. Um, so far, ABC has one new series order, and that's Avalon, which is one of the bazillion shows that David E. Kelly has for, like, well, I think pretty much everyone out there, every company, like Netflix, Amazon, Disney Plus, Paramount, he's he's everywhere. 
Um, and speaking of David E. Kelly, Big Sky hasn't even been renewed yet. So those are the big questions surrounding ABC. They already renewed the Goldbergs, Grey's Anatomy, basically the crux of their lineup. So they're going to have to make some kind of room if they, you know, with some of these other scripted shows, unless they plan on using scripted to fill in the big holes with Dancing with the Stars, which took up a lot of room on Mondays. So big questions surrounding them. So we'll have more on them next week. CBS is done with its bubble show decisions. Two of the four Chuck Lorre comedies that the network had are gone. United States of Al and Be Positive, both canceled. Bob Hart's Abishola and Young Sheldon, obviously all renewed. But so far, the week's biggest surprise is CBS's decision to cancel Magnum P.I. after, what, four seasons? They own the show. It streams on their platform, Paramount+. Plus. Big question mark is, is, is to why. So in terms of other cancellations, Rookies, Good Sam and How We Roll, those have also been canceled. Dick Wolf is having a good week. Th all three of his FBI shows were renewed at CBS. We already know that Bull was announced as ending this season. CBS hasn't picked up any new shows for next season yet. They have six dramas and four comedy pilots in consideration. And at least one of those, the Justin Hartley drama, has been rolled to next season due to scheduling conflicts. So a lot of questions at CBS. So what are they going to fill all the void with? Why did they cancel Magnum? And what does this network look like next season if they're really doing away with something like Magnum, which is a tried and true hit on Fridays? So... The CW is an interesting place to be. First of all, disclaimer, my wife's show just got picked up to series. So yes! consider this my official conflict of interest uh, disclaimer. Um, but yes, congratulations to the lovely and talented Natalie Abrams and her colleagues on Gotham Knights. Yay! So what we know here is... The CW is, remains for sale. Station Group Next Star, which already knows how these shows perform because they are one of the they are the biggest company that owns CW affiliates. So what they're the CW is doing now is they're cleaning house for the first time in in, in recent memory. You know, they're actually canceling shows. So one of the things that Pedowitz used to pride himself on is giving shows a proper ending. Those days are are effectively over, at least right now, anyway, as the CW is prepping for the sale. So we know that they've picked up three shows, Gotham Knights, the Supernatural prequel, and the Walker prequel. All Basically, the network went three for three in its pilots to series orders conversions this year. Well, when you only develop and, and shoot three pilots, it's pretty safe bet that you know you're going to going to have a successful track record because they're not spending money where they know they're not going to going to do stuff with it. Right. You know, you're being much more frugal and much more economical. And if you know that you don't have a lot of space or you know that you're up for sale, you want to kind of keep keep the books a little bit balanced. You're going to keep your tried and true hits on the network. That's what they did. So. You've got the All-American uh, spinoff Homecoming officially renewed for season two after Batwoman and Legends of, of Tomorrow were canceled because Warners didn't want to continue to pay for the studio space anymore. The cancellations have really come in big time this week. So Dynasty, Charmed, In the Dark, Roswell, New Mexico, Naomi, and the 4400, all gone. Still left on the bubble is Legacies, which with the future of the Vampire Diaries franchise still to be determined. Sources say they're already meeting with writers for a potential renewal. So big question mark there. That would mark the end of the Vampire Diaries franchise if it were to go away. That is part of the last Netflix output deal. So if the CW doesn't want it, the odds of that moving to HBO Max as an original are slim because, well, the early seasons already have a streaming deal on Netflix. And you don't really want to do that. You don't want to pay to promote the new season of a show that's streaming on a competitor. So 
So yeah, outside of Legacies, the CW is effectively done. Fox is getting really interesting to me this season. And, you know, drink every time I say interesting. I, I'm aware it's a drinking game. Um, but the network has two animated shows already picked up with antholo scripted anthology Accused already casting. You've got Monarch already pushed from next season because they wanted to, to air the episodes all in order, etc. Um, Thursday Night Football is moving to streaming. So they have a big opening there. So the question is, how are they going to fill that void? The network has no comedy pilots and no drama pilots, and instead only did picked up a handful of scripts under a script-to-series model, which we see mostly with cable and streaming. And you can expect the network to, to bulk up on animation, which it's continued to do over the past couple of years. Remember, Fox owns Bento Box, which does the animation for shows like Bob's Burgers, among others. So... The other thing that that's that's really fascinating to see. See, I just said fascinating and not interesting. Although I just said interesting, so there you go. Um, Fox hasn't renewed the nine one one franchise yet. Those are the network's staple. So, in terms of you know, you want to look at how these networks support themselves with all these procedurals, right? You know, Dick Wolf has six shows on NBC and three more on CBS, and and Fox's answer to that is the nine one one franchise. So it's still not renewed. So that's curious to say the, the least so there are a couple of other shows on the bubble and there's two more animated comedies that have yet to air their new seasons so what to expect a second night of animation that fox has been prepping for that for a long time and probably a lot more unscripted because well it's cheap to do um, and that leaves us with nbc which god bless them they're completely done so they ordered new series this week the George Lopez comedy Lopez versus Lopez, which was picked up to series alongside the Quantum Leap sequel, which was announced last week after we recorded. Then this week, the Law and Order revival plus Law and Order organized crime were both renewed. Again, Dick Wolf, huge week. So he got both of those renewals. SVU is already renewed. All the Chicago shows were already renewed as part of a previous deal. So Dick Wolf, nine for nine with his scripted series on broadcast, all of them returning for the 22-23 season. Again, some of them as part of multiple season pickups. As for the cancellations, a couple of surprises. Mr. Mayor and Keenan both both canceled. And Dan, one of your favorite shows of this, this new season, The Endgame, also canceled. Young Rock and Rookie's Grand Crew and American Auto will all return. And then on the pilot front, you've got the the comedy Hungry, which was NBC's last remaining half-hour pilot and featured Modern Family grad Ariel Winter having replaced Demi Lovato in the lead role, that's been passed over. So the network has a handful of remaining drama pilots, which are in consideration for an off-cycle order. So I think that's our cue to talk about what the fuck an off-cycle order means, Dan. <laughs> I, I believe that would probably be a thing for you to do. I think the listeners would find it very, very interesting. So off cycle, basically what we're accustomed to seeing with pilot season is all like there used to be a hundred pilots that were, you know, comedies and dramas that were all in consideration and all had to be filmed between when they were ordered in January and this time in May because they have to make their decisions. They have to show the sizzles to upfronts. They have to, you know, have everything ready to go. And what's changed here, because largely because of the pandemic, is pilot season is becoming more of a year-round model. So yes, all of the pickups still happen in the beginning part of the year, but it's almost impossible now to kind of shoot everything all at the same time because 
locations are at a premium. There's 500 other shows all in the works, plus other, uh, you know, tons of other development elsewhere. So what these networks are saying is, and what we've seen in the past couple of years is launching a new show in the fall, September, October timeframe, it's impossible. At one point, there were like 30 new shows all competing, all with heavily marketing. You drive down a busy street here in LA back in the fall a couple of years ago, and you're, you're going to see five or 10 billboards for different shows all launching within the same two or three week span. Those days are gone. The networks have really said it's impossible to compete. We're spending millions and millions of dollars to on marketing and promotion for these shows. And it's all at once. And it's not a good use of our resources. So instead, you're seeing a shift to year round development, just like cable networks and streamers have been doing for years. So broadcast networks now are doing off cycle consideration. So this means you don't need to make all of your series pickups before upfronts because the upfront presentations themselves have changed. You're not going to see these presentations, they're not all going to be about specifically NBC or specifically ABC. Instead, it's going to be the all-encompassing. So here's what's going on at at Disney. You're going to have Hulu stuff, Freeform stuff, Disney Plus stuff. You know, it's everywhere, plus ABC. And, And let's face it, the level of interest in broadcast television, at least from my vantage point, is non-existent. You know, I I have probably, you know, like everyone used to, you know, say, oh, the two, you know, two or three weeks before upfronts is so crazy because you're busy prepping, you're reporting all of this stuff. No one cares. Look at the agencies hard. You know, there's still a lot of agencies that are barely sending any people to actually go to the presentations this year. It's, it's, It's a running joke in the industry that people just don't care about broadcast anymore, even though in success, it's the most profitable way to make a show. So... Anyway, that's so that's what off cycle means. It means that a lot of these shows are still going to be in consideration. You could see a, a series pickup come, you know, in June or July or August, anytime. It's year round. And I think we're only going to see more and more of this stuff as this as the years go by and as broadcast continues to to be the redheaded stepchild of television. Phew. That was very, very impressive, Leslie. You can read all of our Upfronts coverage as it is going up on THR. Uh, Leslie and our colleague Rick Porter and the entire team are working their fingers to the bone. And next week is going to be, I don't want to say worse, but it's going to be comparable. So anyway. Next week will be easy because then you just have the presentations and you'll have the schedules, which again, scheduling doesn't really matter at this point in, in, in the narrative. So yeah. This is this is the hard week. Friday will be, you know, Fox and ABC, and then you'll have CBS series pickups. But, you know, you want to look at, at, at how far broadcast has come. Remember back in the day, Dan, when the Sunday before Upfronts was always carved out for the NBC press call? I do. No press call this year for NBC. It's a it's a shifting biz, and we'll see what we actually have to discuss about all of the shifts and the changes in the presentations and stuff on next week's podcast. So come on back and we will do all of that. So let's move along up third. Number three, the changes at Warner brothers discovery have begun to hit the television side, break down the executive carousel, Leslie. So just after I finish bitching and moaning about how no one cares about broadcast television anymore. Guess what people also don't give a shit about anymore? Linear cable, basic cable networks. So especially at Warner Brothers Discovery. So gone is Brett White's, the general manager at TNT, TBS, and True TV. His role has been eliminated. 
And Tom Asham, the former freeform president who left in 2020 to for a role under his friend, former Warner Media CEO Ann Sarnoff, he's also out as president of Global Kids and Young Adults after seeing overseeing networks including Adult Swim and Cartoon Network and Warner Brothers Animation, basically the entire kids and family portfolio for the company. So what's going on there? Well, you've got a discovery executive, Kathleen Finch, who oversaw a big slate of of linear networks for discovery, all the unscripted networks like TLC and, and Discovery Channel proper. She is now over, overseeing all of Warner Media, sorry, all of Warner Brothers Discovery's linear cable network. So you don't need people like Brett White's and Tom Asham anymore. And as one of our, our regular listeners pointed out on Twitter, talking about what's going on with the, the so-called T-Nets, which no one outside of, T, of the T-Nets actually calls it, what's going on there is becoming our new Jeopardy. So we've seen, you know, and we've talked about on recent episodes how TBS and TNT and, and even True TV have drastically cut back their scripted rosters. The last OG was canceled. I think the last show at, at TNT is Snowpiercer. So hold your breath and, and, and let's act surprised when that show moves to HBO Max as an original. But you're going to start to see these networks continue their evolution. And at some point, when some of these current deals expire, become either full-on unscripted networks, a focus purely on sports, and acquired content. So we've already seen a couple of licensing deals for syndicated shows at both of those platforms. Some of them continue to air content from HBO Max on the linear window, which is a cheap and effective way to promote your streamer while also giving some programming hours that you don't have to spend a lot of money on. So that's, a, in a nutshell, what's going on. Excellent. Let's move along to our Showrunner Spotlight segment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Our guest this week is Stephen Moffat, creator of Coupling, longtime showrunner on Doctor Who, and Emmy-winning co-creator of Sherlock. Moffat, who has also adapted Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Dracula for television, is currently the showrunner on HBO's series adaptation of The Time Traveler's Wife, based on the bestseller by Audrey Niffenegger. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Pleasure. So The Time Traveler's Wife was released as a novel in 2003. The movie in 2009 was at least successful according to the box office terms, but that also makes it a fairly uncommon occurrence to get another adaptation this soon. When did you begin to consider the possibility that a retelling of the story in this way was possible? Well, I mean, I, I would think this was too early to do another movie version, uh, but this isn't a movie version, it's a television version, you know? So I, I, I don't feel as though that that time frame thing really matters very much. Um, now, let me think, when did we start? I mean, uh, when the book first came out, I was, I think I was in Australia, or I was in Australia when I read it, that would be about 2005, I think. And I read it and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, and I was working on Doctor Who at the time. And I said to Russell, uh, who was running it then and now, 
we should do an episode of Doctor Who like this. We should do one like The Time Traveler's Wife, a, a time-twisted love story full of loss and longing and all that good stuff. Uh, and so I did. I, I wrote one called uh, The Girl in the Fireplace, uh, which uh, about Madame de Pompadour and the, and the Doctor's semi-fling with her. Um, and uh, <laughs> in Audrey's next book, Her Fearful, Her Fearful Symmetry, uh, she wrote a scene in where one of the characters was watching the girl in the fireplace on television, which means I knew she was on to me, uh, she, uh, that she had noticed I was riffing on her work uh, in Doctor Who. So thereafter, we, we got in touch and we spoke occasionally. And, uh, of course, I riffed a bit more in Doctor Who with River Song and so on. And Audrey came to one of the screenings of the River Song episode, of an episode, and, uh, and we got to know each other a bit. Uh, and then when I was leaving Doctor Who with Brian Minchin, who was co-execing Doctor Who with me, and he was coming to join me at Hartswood, uh, he said on, on our very last day on Doctor Who, you know, I've been looking into the rights to the time traveler's wife. And uh, because of the film that was Warner's, uh, we, I think that would work as a TV show, as a continuing TV show. I think we should go and pitch it. So, and I got quite animated at that. And I, and I thought there was there was space for another version, especially as it's not another film. You know, it's it's uh, it's a TV thing, and that's a very different scenario. So we went and pitched Warner's, and uh, and then to HBO, and uh, and then there was a pandemic in World War Three, and all manner of fun things happened. But I don't think those can all be laid at my door. Uh, and uh, and and here we are. Yeah, that's it. So you mentioned this as a continuing story. So does that mean that season one doesn't, this isn't a true limited series in, by, the, by its definition? So it's, this is an open-ended well, season that's uh, renewable for multiple seasons. Uh, uh, pardon a poor foreigner, but I don't quite know what, uh, what we mean by limited series. We only ever do six episodes of anything. True. Uh, well, the, uh, <laughs> well there's, at least stateside, there's been a, you know, a discussion about ongoing versus limited, limited being, you know, yeah. 10 or 15, as opposed to a, the, our old broadcast model of 22, et cetera. I but understand. then there's been, well, is it a limited series? Is it contained? Or is this something that will run for multiple seasons and get a second season? Um, well, we hope we'll get another run, uh, but it is limited in the sense that it does not go on forever. I've got a, I've got a plan in my head about how we start, how we continue and how we end. I'm not exactly saying what that is, uh, but uh, we we only get about a third of the way through the book in the first season, so we're hoping for more. It's a it's a drama series. It's a, and uh, with, with the prospect and the, uh, uh, the 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 tremulous hope of returning. Uh, but you know, never for very long runs. I mean, it's becoming more traditional over here, isn't it? That you do the shorter runs. Absolutely, but there's a, just a question. Everything is built as a limited series, so when things get renewed, it's like it's a surprise. So oh, <laughs> that's yeah. it's why it's important to designate at least here. I think, here, right? I, think I think we're billing this as a just as a drama series, and that's what we we are actually saying. So yeah. So yeah. you know, in, in when you pitched to Warner's and, and HBO, was it inherently necessary to contrast what you wanted to do with what the movie had attempted, and how you did you attempt to do it? I didn't talk a lot about the movie. Uh, I talked about the book uh, because I think that's what you do. I mean, the, you know, the the, the, uh, the movie came out, it was very successful. A lot of people love that movie. But this is a different thing. This is a TV version. And I talked about what I thought could be explored in a television version. What I And which is a lot about what I loved about the book. 
It's a lot about that. I mean, I, I wouldn't ever spend time ever adapting something unless I absolutely loved it. I just wouldn't do that because uh, it's an awful lot of time to spend. I mean, there are people who brilliantly do that. You know, the, uh, you know Andrew Davis, the brilliant uh, British writer, he sometimes adapts things. He doesn't like very much, but he's so clever that he, uh, that he, can, he can turn it into something else. That's not my interest. Uh, I, I'm doing this because I think, you know, there is huge value in this in that novel that I think could be mined in a different way in a in a TV series. Now, as you say, you've adapted some of the biggest and most frequently adapted properties in all of the English language. Is there a specific appeal that you find to lending your voice to tales that have been told multiple times that have been adapted in multiple ways? That way you get to say, OK, but here is the distinctive version that is is mine to some degree. No, I don't really. I think I'm just a fanboy. I just think there are things that I really love and I want a go. You know, that's it. I don't think anything sort of, I shall now present this to you in a new form. I'm not like that at all. I just think, oh, can I have a go? Oh, Sherlock Holmes, awesome. Uh, that's what I think. It's enthusiasm. It's a level of enthusiasm that overflows into the unfortunate event of a television production. You know, that's uh, that's what it is. Um, I'm not a, a, an adapter for hire, and I certainly never, ever thought that I would end up uh, being someone that people thought of as, uh, you know, a serial adapter. I, I don't think of myself that way at all. I'm obviously wrong, but, uh, but it's, no, it's enthusiasm. It's absolute enthusiasm uh, of, you know, I'd, I'd like to go with this. And, and, and in a way, I think a good adaptation, a good version of an original kind of hopefully communicates to an audience what you love about it. You know, that's what, when Mark and I did Sherlock Holmes, we were saying, this is what we love about Sherlock Holmes. These are our favorite bits. You know, it's a, it's an act of public worship in a, in a strange way. But you obviously, when you adapt Arthur Conan Doyle or you adapt Bram Stoker, you don't need to worry about what Arthur Conan Doyle and Bram Stoker are going to say about your adaptation. This would not be the same case. What was Audrey's involvement and what was it like having that active living voice sort of in the back of your head? Well, I, I always love the, this question because I have to assert at this point, I'm very pleased that Audrey's alive. I think that's a positive <laughs> thing. You know, because sometimes it's put like, is it a shame that Audrey's alive? No, it's a really great thing that Audrey's alive. I, I really like her. She's a friend. <laughs> um, but yes, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle did not get the opportunity to punch me in the face, as I'm sure he would have liked it. Uh, and he was a big lad, so that wouldn't have gone well for me. Uh, so, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, it's a living author, and and I'm sensitive to what a writer thinks, because we're all completely insane, uh, and we don't like being second-guessed. We don't really like him. What was Audrey's involvement? Well, I mean... She'd sold the rights, so we just spoke to Warners and HBO, and then I got in touch with her because I know her and say, look, we're going to do Time Traveler's Wife, and I'll, I'll keep you up to speed. And we we talked about it at dinner. We changed emails. We did all that sort of stuff. I mean, Audrey's a, a very, very smart lady. She was, uh, at that time and uh, until quite recently, writing the sequel, uh, The Other Husband, coming to bookshops quite soon. 
so she was really sort of heavily into that and all the other complicated aspects of her life. You know, she has a full life, Audrey. So I don't know that she was necessarily volunteering to go and do a lot of work in television, but I would, uh, I would talk her through what I was doing with each episode and uh, what changes or, you know, how this would adapt, how, how this would be different. And uh, mainly what she said was, she was always quite reticent about saying anything. She said she liked it. She might just have been being nice. I don't know. People are nice sometimes. Uh, you know, she, uh, uh, but what she mainly said was, I, I would, I mean, I, what I'd really like is for you to make a show that's a, as successful as Doctor Who or, or, or Sherlock, which is, you know, and I said, well, you know, that's not a small ask. That's 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 a big one. Okay, uh, I'll do my best. But that's what she mainly wants. She wants a show that work that really that people like, uh, and that uh, and did really well. So we're hoping. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, I've been watching episodes of this, and then last night I went back and I rewatched um, uh, the girl in the fireplace, and it is very funny to see them side by side and to sort of see the conversation that you're having. Mm -hmm. How would you describe? what your approach was at the time and how you saw the girl in the fireplace as being kind of your direct response or your direct interaction with uh, time traveler's wife. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it's, I, I think it feels quite like the time traveler's wife. There's a, there's a lot of the, uh, the sort of tone of love and longing and loss in that. And the, uh, but obviously it's Doctor Who and the Doctor's not Henry, you know, to say the least. Um, and the detail is quite different, uh, you know, and it, and it's not jumbled up the way it is in, uh, in the movie. But, but it was definitely my response to it. It was really saying, what if you use time travel as a prism through which to look at love and meeting someone and falling in love with someone and and all those things? It was it's 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 making time travel a viewpoint not the point you know you're looking at something else through this rather than saying isn't it cool to time travel which you know frankly i spent a great deal of my career doing <laughs> so uh, yeah. well i was going to say i mean because that was that was fairly early on in your doctor who tenure and then you spent over a decade thinking probably more about time travel in various forms than probably just about any human being alive um as you basically went through all of those years on Doctor Who and all of those variations and permutations on themes that you got to do. Did that change your perspective on what you liked about the genre? And maybe do you think it kind of filtered through in a different way when you went back and revisited the book and attempted to adapt it? I'm not sure it did. I mean, as you know, I occasionally riffed again on it with River Song and uh, and all that, and the Doctor keeping his spare TARDIS key inside a copy of The Time Traveler's Wife, and all sorts of little sly references, because I loved them. I mean, if anything changed, if anything changed, it wasn't the time travel thing. I mean, I'm confident in writing time travel, he said boldly. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I, if anything, I'm, you know, two decades more married than I was. And the theme of Time Traveler's Wife is love over time. That's what it's about. Uh, love over time, but not necessarily in that order, is what the uh, is what the book is. It's love over time. And so uh, I, I've thought more about what it is to love someone, what it is to be loved, and the fact 
that painfully love and loss are inextricably linked. Love means loss. Sorry to cheer up your day. Love entails loss. Love is nothing without loss. But, you know, when you lose your heart, you don't get it back or it comes back broken. That's, that's it. That's it. Love and loss. And what, uh, what I think she does so brilliantly in the book and what, and what I'm trying to do in the show is say, there is drama in a happy marriage. You know, normally we inject drama into marriage by, you know, one of them has an, uh, has an affair or gets divorced or they hate each other, or one of them turns out to be a reptile from space, or is that just me? You know, you, <laughs> you normally inject drama that way. She didn't do that. She just injects drama by a device that reminds you this is not forever. In fact, it's not for very long. Happy ever after is a terrible lie. It's happy for a while. That's what you get. You are dancing on the edge of a cliff and you will lose your footing. But the music's still going, so what are you going to do? That's what it is. And it's something about what it is to be human there. There's something very big about that. Because we talk about being happy and settled and everything's great now. Yeah? When you're getting older and sicker every day and, and you're going to have heartbreak and pain and misery. And at the end of that long and difficult road, life will play its funny little trick and you'll die. Right. That's your future. So uh, how come you're laughing? How come you laugh right now? Right. Because that's what we are as human beings. That's what we do. We deal with the oncoming train by putting on the kettle and having a cup of tea. It's uh, an extraordinary thing. I often when I'm writing it and when I was reading it and, and obviously spent more time writing it now, I, I would find myself in this little loop of thought. How does Henry cope with the fact that he knows he's going to die. And then I'd remember, I know exactly the same thing, right? I've got the evidence in front of me every morning as this beard gets grayer and those eyes get yet more hooded. I know it's going to end. So how, how do I cope with that? And I think, easily. I It's amazing, but we cope with it quite easily. We just get on with it. We just, you know... Uh, Love means loss, but that doesn't mean you don't love. That just means you love harder, faster, and better. And I think these are massive things to say. I, th I think I was laughing at the idea that uh, somehow, from your perspective, maybe a time travel story becomes somehow a more realistic way and a more mature way of looking at love than something like coupling, which was obviously about your relationship as a younger man. Yeah. Yes, it is. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, or, or is it more mature or is it simply long, long term? You know, uh, okay, it's okay for you guys in coupling. You're getting together. It's all lovely, isn't it? And then what? Well, then another year and another year and another year. You know, I mean, yes, time travel is a device that brings the brevity of your own future into play right now in the present. And that's something we should all actually think about. Not so that we can sit around being depressed, by the way. There is absolutely no sodding point in being depressed about this. Get the hell on with it, as Henry's mother says uh, one week before her death. 
You know, get the hell on with it. You are here for so short a time. And, you know, a lot of it's great, but in how great it is, is the tragedy. In happiness is the darkness because it gets taken away from you. The universe will want its toys back. You mentioned the other husband, which Audrey is, you know, has, has been writing. What kind of conversations have you had with her about optioning that title? And is that something that you could see the time traveler's wife morphing into over time? I don't think so, but I don't know. So I don't know anything about the book. Uh, and I certainly didn't have that conversation with Audrey. It was enough I was violating her back catalogue without <laughs> threatening <laughs> her current work. And I think she probably would like to think, no, this is mine. Just go away. Go away, Stephen. Go away. <laughs> Just leave it alone. Let me have some time. Uh, so I haven't, I haven't thought about that. I haven't. Um, all I know about it is, you know, she was saying it's a very different piece. It's a very different piece. I'm I'm very excited to to read it. I will be. I I keep thinking, can I just ask to read it? And I think, no, 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 don't don't, don't be intrusive. Don't be intrusive. Stop it. You're being a stalker. So uh, I I just let her get on with it. Uh, I I am looking forward to reading it as a reader, as just a bloke who likes books by Audrey Niffenegger. That's that's, uh, not as somebody who's looking to plow it into mainstream television. You know, so, you know, touching back on on Doctor Who, you know, after having spent so long in this world and in this version of time travel, do you think that you would write Doctor Who differently if you had a chance to return to that franchise? Um, Not really. Doctor Who is Doctor Who. You know, it's a different beast entirely. They both happen to involve time travel and you can make them resemble each other in different ways. But Doctor Who is a, you know, a highly sugared adventure yarn for kids and adults who like that sort of thing. You know, that's what it is. I love it to bits, but, you know, that is, it's a romp. It's a mad, uh, it, you know, it, it's adventure. Uh, it's not the same thing as the time traveler's wife. You know, I always think, you know, the, the characters in Doctor Who, the, the companions and so on, they're mad people. They're mad. They're all mad. Because if that guy offered, or that woman these days, offered me a, 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 a ride in the TARDIS, I'd run a mile. I'd run a mile because the doctor will stand there and tell you, I'll show you wonders and, and majestic things and you will be transported. No, you won't. I'll get stuck down a tunnel and there'll be a giant frog monster trying to eat my leg. That's what's going to happen, doctor. I've seen that ruddy show. Now leave me alone. because <laughs> um, So, yeah, I think it's a different... Uh, doctor Who is very, very much his own beast. I think that's why Doctor Who spends a lot of its time uh, riffing on other shows. You know, uh, I mean, Time Traveler's Wife is only one of, I think, a number of movies and books and things that Doctor Who just takes a go at because it's such a distinct flavour, Doctor Who. It can just say, oh, let's do Die Hard this week, you know, and it'll be different because, the uh, you know, the most ridiculous hero in modern fiction is taking over. Uh, but, yeah, I think, I, I don't think it would change it, no. How interested are you in the rules or explanations or mechanics when it comes to time travel? Because I, I again, rewatching uh, Fireplace last night, it's sort of funny that the doctor goes through a whole explanation, then finally goes, yeah, that just sounds better than it's just a magic door. And yeah. Time Traveler's Wife has the, well, you know, it's a genetic condition, but let's not worry about that too much. Yeah. How much are you personally invested in spelling things out in the genre? I think when you talk about the rules of time travel, you're not talking about scientific rules. You're talking about narrative rules. These are the rules we are going to observe for this story. We're not talking about, 
you know, the science of time travel, which, let's be clear, does not exist, right? It does not exist. You mean, you know, the only time travel you're doing is, you, you know, you got to know from this morning by the usual slow method. You're not going back. You're here now. That's it. Breakfast is not returning. Um, so I, I, I'm not massively, I mean, I'm, I, I, I always like reading about these things, but I, I don't think, uh, I, I am more interested in time travel as a narrative device and the rules of time travel, which vary from show to show and book to book. And in the case of Dr. Who from episode to episode, uh, but they, these are narrative rules rather than scientific rules. Now, more so than the book, I would say the series feels very aware of how simultaneously romantic and fundamentally creepy the main love story is here. How did you initially think you were going to approach the challenge of the grooming aspect of the story? And did that evolve as you actually got to work on it? It's just not there. I mean, you can choose to malevolently praise the story to make it sound as though that's what's happening, but it is not. It never has been. Uh, he's already, he marries, he's married to this woman. He's with this woman. Uh, he's in love with this woman. And then he accidentally, through no fault of his own, travels back in time. He's not grooming anyone. Why would, he's already married to her. Uh, there's none of that actually takes place. And he sets tremendous rules for himself, particularly in the TV show where he's not going to tell her that they're together in the future. He only ever does so by accident. And by that time, she's 16. He is, he behaves in the appropriate way with a child whom, to whom he is attached. He behaves paternally. Now, the thing I keep comparing this to is if I look at a photograph of my wife as a child, then I love that, that little thing. I do. Because I am 99% hardwired to love Sue Virtue. I can't help it. I see her in a photograph. I think, there she is. I know she's cross about something. Well, I know she doesn't like that guy. I watched a little film of her recently because uh, we her mother died recently. We looked some some of the old footage and so on. And I just thought, that's just Sue. That's Sue totally. But when I love that little creature, I don't, it's not sexual. How could it be? It's a child. I feel, if anything, paternal. Um, uh, you know, it's you know we are, we are capable to say the least of more than one kind of love, and trying to pretend that there's any sort of sexual grooming content to this at all, it you'd have to make the story happen in a different order for it to be true, because it would have to be the case that Henry would meet the six year old before the adult version. I mean, it just it just doesn't work at all. It's not right. Now, I think sometimes people kind of want to make trouble, but and if they do, they do. But that's not what happens in the story. It simply isn't. Um, and I worry about, I worry, you know, it's how, and how terrible to reduce the complexity of love to just sex. Because that's not true. That's not true. Sex is an impulse. Love is an opera. Right? Sex is a chemically induced itch. Love is the story of the rest of your life. And to, to demand that we look at every interaction between two people through a sexual prism is to demean what it is to be human. How dare you? No, 
That's not what's going on. If our father, and I know someone in this situation, has lost, you know, has, if a man loses his wife, but he has children, and one, of the, and one of the daughters perhaps grows up to look a bit like his wife, he will find that resemblance a tremendous solace. But of course, it's not sexual, because we are capable of a complicated array of loving feelings for other human beings, hardly any of which are sexual. We do seem to live through a time where we think sex is everything. Well, sex, is, sex is a programmed response. It's a tiny part of us. And I, I, I take exception to that interpretation of this wonderful story, Audrey Niffenegger's wonderful story about the endurance and limitless compassion of love and its ability to face up to even the end of days undamaged and reducing it to something perverted or unpleasant. Human beings are better and bigger than that. So that here endeth the rant. <laughs> but at the same time, you do acknowledge that it's part of the conversation. There is the specific joke where she is playing with her little horse and and he gets uncomfortable with even the word grooming. So you knew you had to acknowledge that it was something that was on people's mind, whether it was on your mind or not. Oh, I'm not acknowledging anything for the audience. Uh, I'm acknowledging it for the character. Because of course he thinks that. He thinks, oh, Jesus Christ. And uh, the more significant line is actually the one earlier, where she says, was it love at first sight? He says, God, I hope not. Right? Uh, that, you know, that's, uh, that's because, because you have to pick up that idea and throw it away. It's not there. Uh, and it, uh, I mean, I mean, I mean just, just to continue on that, um, <laughs> if anyone gets groomed, it's Henry. <laughs> Henry's the one who's changed. Claire is exactly the same person as the six-year-old and as the 70-year-old. She doesn't change at all. She's just the same. Henry is a completely different person when we meet him in the library to the one who turns up in the clearing because basically she rebuilds him into the man she'd prefer. So uh, it happens the other way around. Jesse says it, where I groomed you, where I, you know, that's... So no, this is not a story about that kind of thing. And it's uh, it's difficult when people say that. I, I find it difficult because it's not true. It's not true. It's, that, it's not borne out by the sequence of events in the book or the film or the TV show or I'm sure the upcoming musical. <laughs> and then there are the other sort of unrelated to that sexual strangenesses that you either have to basically elide entirely from the text or treat as being vaguely insane. Like, for example, Henry's sexual experimentation with himself. How did you decide that that needed to be included, but also needed to be something that kind of freaked Claire out in the way that one would imagine it would? No, she just laughed at it. Um, look, this, I mean, I, I, I don't want to spoil anyone here, but, and I don't want to uh, be responsible for a terrible revelation, but um, there's this thing called masturbation that's been going on for a while. And it's very popular, right? Especially among young boys, <laughs> right? It happens. I got to tell you, you close the door, that's what's gone down. <laughs> and that, exotic and extraordinary though it is, that's exactly what's going on there. He's having sex with himself. 
Sex with someone you love, as someone once said. Uh, no, it's not, uh, you know, come on. <laughs> you, you, there's all sorts of disgraceful things you could say about it, but I, I like Henry's explanation. But he would, wouldn't you? I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I can buy that, but on the other hand, it still feels a little different. The masturbation versus... You know, slightly more literal, but you so, know. so so you 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 got a problem with that part, but the time travel—that's uh, that's nothing. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> this, is, this is human beings. Uh, we have that itch. We scratch it when we can. It's no big deal. It's fine. It's just, it's not a major part of us, but you know, it's there and it's funny. And so what? Really, so what? So moving in a different direction here. Oh, you know, dear let's, God, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk a little bit about, about casting. You know, what were the hardest aspects to find when it came to, to finding your, your Claire and Henry before you landed on Rose Leslie and Theo James? Um, with Claire, it's very, it's, it's very difficult to, to get Claire right. Claire is much more the voice of Audrey in the book than Henry is. Uh, uh, Claire and Audrey are quite, Similar, I would say. They're both redheads. They're both from Chicago. They're both art students. You know, they guess Audrey is Claire to, to a great degree. And there's an interesting thing happens when somebody writes a character they intend to be themselves. They're, that ca character becomes a little bit harder to see. Yeah, you know, you're not really aware of your own blind spots. You know, it's like the taste of your own mouth. You have to sort of eliminate it. So she's harder to get hold of in the book than uh, than Henry, because uh, it's, in a way, the author's own voice. Uh, but there's a, there was enough little clues there for me to, to get a, a, a handle on it. The reason I say all that is it's really very tempting and easy and possible to have an incredibly passive Claire, uh, a Claire who's just waiting for the man to come along. You know, it's really easy to do it that way. And most of the editions gave us a kind of passive, you know, charming, funny, but passive Claire. And I was always saying that, you know, look at it. Look at the book. Look at the script. Claire is not like that. Claire is, you know, has, is full of vitality, full of a kind of anger. She's a bit up herself at times. She is, frankly, not always particularly nice. And she's, while she might, you know, uh, be very happy that her future has been laid out. At the same time, she's rather angry that someone else is telling her what her future is. You know, that might seem like an unreasonable position. Well, one feature of Claire is she doesn't mind if it's an unreasonable position. You know, it's quite tough to get someone who's willing to go uh, to, to give the character all that vitality and to stray into the bits where she's not as nice as you might want her to be, uh, to let her be imperfect, let her be flawed, a bit of a princess, as Henry calls her. Um, there's a there's a magnificent uh, a line in the book, which is inside Claire's head, but I put it into the dialogue, where she where she notices that clearly Henry has a, another girlfriend, uh, and she and she just thinks, well, bad luck, dear, I'm here now, <laughs> and you think, whoa, you are a handful, Claire Absher. So I put that into the script so that she actually says it out loud, I'm here now. Uh, and I like that because she you know, makes her different. Now, the reason I, I say all that about uh, Rose is Rose brought all of that anger and uh, vividness and vitality to the part with none of the passivity. 
that is an inevitable consequence of the kind of, I mean, it's a story of predestination. I mean, that's what it is. So, you know, you have limited agency in a, in a pre, when, when you have a destiny. Um, uh, but she, she managed to create that. And uh, she was at the time heavily pregnant. She did, did the, the Zoom audition heavily pregnant, which was a thought. And I was thinking, uh, and after we closed down the Zoom windows and all the actresses had gone, I said, well, the only question we've got here is how do we handle the childcare? Because Rose has got it. Rose has got it. She just gets this. And it's, uh, it really is seriously harder to do than you think, that kind of part. It always is. More the, authorial, the more you are the authorial voice, the harder you have to work. Uh, with Theo, um, well, I mean, I, I, I think he does. Unex- I mean, there's a temptation when somebody is as insanely good looking as that. Well, one, there's a temptation to hate their guts. I mean, I, I, I think that's fair. Uh, I mean, why could I not have been that guy? Um, but there's also a temptation to think maybe their career is based on their looks. He's an exquisite actor and an incredibly hardworking actor. And the thing that really uh, sealed the deal for him was the distinctions he was capable of making between Henry at 28 and Henry at 36. It's not a lot of time. You know, that's not a big difference. But he, uh, you know, if you see the episode four where they actually uh, have dinner at the same time, the, 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 the range of nuances that are slightly different from one another I think is masterly, the slightly different way of moving, of smiling, uh, of delivering the dialogue, of who you look at when you're saying something, how he looks at Claire, all those things just very, very slightly and precisely different. Uh, those, were the, uh, those were the elements that had to go into uh, uh, our two leads, and I could not be more happy with them, especially as I entered this process saying, well, it's a bunch of Brits making this show, so let's not have a couple of Brits playing the lead. Along those lines, did you always know that you had to keep the story in Chicago? And and does this, to some degree, feel like a particularly American version of time travel? I hadn't thought about that second question. I don't know what to say about that. Um, I think it's a very Audrey version of time travel. That's what I think it is. I think it's a, ver- a version of time travel that uh, someone who isn't as invested perhaps in science fiction as someone like me would come up with. I liked it. It felt like science fiction written by somebody doesn't necessarily all that interested in science fiction and therefore it was really good. <laughs> um, uh, the first part, um, well, I, this is a really interesting subject. I really, I, I could talk for hours about this, but I promise I won't. What things matter when you adapt? What things matter? The first thing I said was she has to be a redhead. I don't know why, but uh, but Claire Abshire has to be a red redhead. I just said no, redhead has to be a redhead. I don't know why that, but just I just know in my gut she has to be a redhead. Uh, if you ask most people uh, what city it's set in, uh, they mostly don't know. But I felt it should be Chicago. No, I'll I, I'll own up to the fact that the but most of it is actually shot in New York. Uh, but we went to but uh, we went to Chicago for all the bits that you can tell, uh, in which are different, as it were. You know, cities at street level are not that different. But so we we uh, we really tried to make it absolutely Chicago uh, centric. In the same way, you know, people used to say of Sherlock, you know, it's such a love letter to London, and I'd sit there thinking it's shot in Cardiff. 
we do about three days an episode in London and get Benedict to walk in front of Big Ben. You know, I mean, that's that's how it works. Uh, so, but, you know, on the subject of what matters and what doesn't, I, I am fascinated endlessly by that because I can't explain most of these things. For instance, if there were tomorrow uh, or in the next year or so, a new James Bond film, as indeed there will be, but it's a new James Bond film. It's a great James Bond film. There's a great James Bond and it's all terrific. And he, he blows up a mountain and shoots people off a monorail and all the things that you want to happen in a James Bond film. But in that film, for no particular reason and never referenced or explained, he's 006. I can look, look, the temperature dropped, didn't it? Just no, he's not. He's 007. You care that he's 007. Never mind the fact he's not the same man he was. Never mind that Roger Moore and Sean Connery are not remotely similar. Never mind any of that. Never mind the fact that he's the wrong age. Never mind all these details that you change. He's got to be 007. Why? Some things matter, and I don't know why. If I told you that Sherlock Holmes didn't live in Baker Street anymore, he lived in Mitchell Street. You wouldn't like it. Something, something would jangle, but it doesn't matter. But it does. So these things, these are things that I don't understand. I've wittered on too long about that, but uh, you well, know. On the other hand, it also sounds very much as if you're about ready to pitch your own version of James Bond. So no, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not <laughs> We could absolutely talk about uh, Time Traveler's Wife all day. I want to sort of transition a little bit uh, towards sort of heading away. You've talked for now seven years about sort of the idea that you and Mark had another season of Sherlock already outlined, but obviously you had two stars who were extraordinarily busy, and that was kind of the thing that was keeping another Sherlock series from coming. Where do we stand now on that? Well, roughly that. I can't really remember if we really do have another series uh, plot. And maybe I say that. I, I, those were those days where I was doing Sherlock and Doctor Who at the same time. They were a little bit of a whirlwind. I didn't always. I didn't always. I, I misspoke quite often. In fact, usually. Uh, so I don't know if that's true or not. But um, the, the the thing is, yes, Mark and Sue and I would. I think just go and do another Sherlock. Uh, we love it. It's such fun to do. Uh, Martin and Bennett, who remember are are the faces of that show. It's much more built around them, uh, and it has much more of an impact on their lives. They're not so sure they want to do it, and that's fair enough. Now, before anyone gets cross with them, I think they really have to reflect how loyal they were for four seasons and a special to that show. I mean, for you know most of the time that they played those roles, that was their least well paid job, right? They could make more money more or less doing anything else. Um, and just to uh, enforce that point, uh, Martin Freeman turned down The Hobbit. And he was told, if you turn this down, it will not be offered to you again. He said, I can do it. I'm doing the second season of Sherlock for practically no money by the standards of The Hobbit. And, uh, and he, so he, he absolutely turned it down out of loyalty to the show, at which point Peter Jackson, bless him, said, oh, dear Lord, there's nobody else. Let's move the whole production of The Hobbit so that Martin can be in it. But Martin, when he turned it down, had no reason to suppose that it would ever come back for him. In fact, he thought it wouldn't. And it hurt him a lot to turn it. He was very, very loyal to the show. Uh, so if they're not now wanting to do it, that's because things move on. And that's fair enough. That's fair enough. They're allowed to say that. doesn't mean we'll never do it again. But uh, I, think, I think it's not, it's certainly not going to happen in the short term. Uh, I, I would love to do it again, but 
I, I don't know that we will. And that's and yes, that is up to the boys. But don't 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 be cross with them. They were they they they, they were they were wonderfully loyal for far longer than most people uh, at that level would be, frankly. You know, kind of wrapping up here, you know, you've been out of obviously out of the Doctor Who sphere for a few years now. But as a fan, do you get invested invested in things like the reveal of the new Doctor, like this weekend's new reveal? Um, did you have any thoughts on the casting? Well, uh, uh, the reveal didn't work so well for me because I knew months ago. But because uh, 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 Russell showed me the, the audition. So uh, I've I've seen him I've seen him in action. Uh, I think he's going to be great. He's uh, he's he's really well. He's he's what a new doctor has to be. He's both exactly the same and utterly brand new. Uh, and and above all, and I think uh, you know in terms of uh, of the highly important uh, diversity aspect, he's another Scottish doctor, which is awesome. Because us Scots, you know, you can't have enough of us. We're the best at everything. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he's great. He's great. And I was, I'm very excited for him. I think he'll, uh, what, what a ride he's in for. And we like to wrap these conversations with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying lately? I always hate that question. I always think I should, uh, I should write things down so I remember what the hell I've been watching. What I've been watching. Uh, the thing that has most struck me in recent times uh, and the thing I can remember right now is uh, I really enjoyed the show Severance. I thought that was uh, on Apple TV. I thought that was amazing. I thought it was an incredible idea. I'm sure every every writer watching that just thought, why didn't I have that idea? That's an amazing idea. Uh, and the, it's not only an amazing idea, they actually extrapolate it beautifully. It's amazingly short, great cast. Uh, I, uh, I, I was... I was uh, sick with admiration for it excellent well thank you so much for joining us we appreciate it Stephen. my absolute pleasure all right the time traveler's wife premieres sunday may 15th on hbo number five as usual we wrap things up with the critics corner among this week's major new launches the new season of hacks debuts on hbo max on Friday, you've got The Essex Serpent on Apple, The Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix. See, I told you David E. Kelly has shows everywhere. The Kids in the Hall returns on Amazon. Conversations with Friends launches its entire season on Hulu. And then you just heard our interview about The Time Traveler's Wife, which premieres on HBO. And then Angeline, which is based on a Hollywood Reporter feature by our colleague Gary Baum, debuts on Peacock. Dan, pretty big selection here. That is a wide selection, and we can at least quickly eliminate the things that I can't talk about or won't talk about. Uh, conversations with friends, I haven't had a second to watch, so whatever. You can check out uh, our colleague Angie Hahn's review at The Hollywood Reporter. And there is an embargo on Angeline, so no clue, but I'll be watching it this weekend, and I'll have a review next week. I really liked Conversations with Friends up until the finale, and I will say the music on that is superb. Excellent. See? There you go. But the finale pissed me off and uh -oh. made me hate the whole thing. <laughs> it started off so enthusiastic, Leslie. But I'm not a critic. I, I'm amazed that it took us that long into... Shots, 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 shots. I'll stop. Go on. <laughs> 
So let's go in some sort of general order, starting with Hacks. The second season of Hacks has already premiered on HBO Max, and uh, I've seen the first six episodes. And the the simple and reassuring thing is this is roughly the show it was last season. And so if you liked the first season of Hacks, and I liked the first season of Hacks very much, and liked the first season of Hacks very much as it went along. We liked it more as it went along. So I would say it picks up where it was at the end of last season qualitatively. So if you were a big fan of where things resolved, it continues that way. This season has a little bit more forward momentum than the first season because uh, basically Deborah, played by Gene Smart, and Ava, played by Hannah Einbinder, uh, are on the road. Um, Deborah is testing new material, and so they are out on a very, very lavish tour bus overseen by a guest starring character named Weed, played by Laurie Metcalf, who is pretty much always welcome wherever Laurie Metcalf goes. And so that means there's a fair amount of jumping around the the country and doing little shows and all of that fun stuff. And so that moves the story around in a way that maybe the first season didn't always have. I, I have to say, honestly, I liked that the first season made effort to establish Las Vegas as a location. And I think that probably the show does lack something because it's kind of taking place in a bunch of generic flyover locations that are, you know, they're named, but it's not like they're spending extensive time filming in those locations. So it loses something there. I think that the season also maybe makes the mistake of trying to get certain people and certain characters over-involved based on what their actual narrative necessity is. So I think that, you know, obviously the Hacks team is very smart and aware that people love, for example, the Jimmy and Kayla dynamic, Jimmy being Deborah's manager and Kayla being his assistant and everyone loved their bantering, their flirtation, blah, blah, blah. And, and I did too. What I'll say is I don't know that it's being necessarily used organically here. It's, it's sort of one of those, we know we have people who, the audience likes also in the case of Paul Downs, he's co-creator and frequent director on the show. So you want to have him involved in whatever ways he wants to be involved. And so there's some reaching there, you know, that the, there are certain characters who got, who get brought in for an episode or an episode or two where it doesn't necessarily make sense for them to have been brought in, but it doesn't really matter because you like them so much. So Poppy Lou's uh, Kiki, who is Deborah's personal blackjack dealer, who, I don't think the first season knew how to use necessarily either. Here, it feels like she's being even more shoehorned in. But again, if you like the character, and I happen to like the character very much, you can't complain too much about that. And really and truly, the show is about Deborah and Ava. It's about Gene Smart and Hannah Einbinder. And the show became much better in the second half of the first season when it realized that it wasn't just the Gene Smart show. It's This, this is not a matter of people not loving or respecting Gene Smart enough. I don't think anyone needs to worry about that. Gene Smart is a national treasure. We all know that. But having it be an actual two-hander made the show significantly better. And finding ways to use Hannah Einbinder as a performer, who, who people didn't necessarily know her strengths and weaknesses at the start of the first season. And the writers obviously found them as they went along. I think this season is much more confident in finding the dynamic between those two women and in finding the things that Hannah Einbinder does well. And I think she does a lot of things very well. Um, I will 
say this probably several more times as we go along, and I said it last year as well, it is ridiculous for her to be in awards consideration as a supporting actress. She is very clearly a co-lead in this. It is a two-lead series. Pretending that Gene Smart is the lead in this series is ridiculous. And uh, probably Hannah Einbinder is more likely to get nominations in supporting categories, but she's a co-lead on the show. It, you know, the, the narrative of the show is her narrative. Anywho, new season of Hacks is very, very good. Uh, to me, the show still falls short of, of greatness because of certain clunky things it does. You know, the show loves to set up cliffhangers that don't necessarily need to be cliffhangers, like the end of the first season. Will Deborah find out about the email? you know maybe she will maybe she won't it's 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 artificial drama that there's plenty of natural drama here what you do know and what you can feel reassured about is that when the artificial drama is introduced the show does address things quickly it doesn't leave secrets untold for too long it doesn't drag things out and i appreciate that because the writers fine guests on our podcast are smart and so that is a thing to be reassured by Continuing on to Friday, The Essex Serpent is on Apple, and it is a, a literary adaptation of sorts, and it features um, it features Claire Danes and Tom Hiddleston and other fine actors, and it's based on the novel by Sarah Perry, and it's sort of a, a period drama about a widow who goes to Essex and investigates reports of a mystical or mythical or something sea creature and extensive debates ensue. Is it an actual real monster that's out there or is the monster truly us? Is the monster all metaphorical or allegorical? Um, I'm not going to spoil that for you. It's a conceit that to my mind feels like it would be much better on the page. This is not one of those books that I read before the series, so I don't I can't say with 100% certainty, but a lot of the discussion, especially honestly in the first episode of whether this serpent thing is mythical or any sort of seven different metaphors, it it becomes rather clumsy and it becomes rather clumsy even if you have someone as good as Tom Hiddleston doing the delivery. I I think that probably the series might have been better off with, I believe it was Kira Knightley who was supposed to star initially. I think she probably would have been a more natural choice than Claire Danes, though Claire Danes is, is fine. Uh, I was sort of struck by how much more interesting the character played by Haley Squires is. She's playing a, a young, budding Marxist, and she actually feels like she has much more, I don't know, characteristics, much more interest, intrigue, however you want to put it. She's a more interesting character than a lot of the other characters. Tom Hiddleston is is very good. He is one of those actors who really and truly could read the phone book and would do it with interesting inflections and thoughtful consideration of people's names and their area codes and stuff. So he's good. He's entirely watchable. And there's a nice period feel to it. I, I watched two and a half episodes and and then went on with other things. So I can say that you know, it starts a little slow. It it does pick up and then there's a lot of television. So whether <laughs> whether this is something you need, given the sheer amount of television or not, I can't say with certainty. I can say the same thing, though, about Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix, which, as you mentioned, is indeed David E. Kelly uh, as creator, Ted Humphrey as developer. And it's all based on the Michael Connolly book series, which is an adjacent 
to the Harry Bosch series book series, and it was adapted previously as a as a solidly above average B movie with Matthew McConaughey. This is probably less successful than that. And, uh, you know, as I said in my review, and, and I think this probably sounds more damning than necessarily I meant it to, uh, but it can sound as damning as you want it to. It's not a bad show if you can get over the fact that the main character is boringly developed. He's not particularly excitingly played by uh, Manuel Garcia, Rolfo. And there are at any given times three different legal cases going and none of them are all that interesting. But other than that, it's okay. You know, it's a sort of bright, it's kind of a, it's kind of a TNT show from the days of all of the somebody and somebody shows, the Rizzoli and Isles and Franklin and Bash kind of style shows. It's a little bit like a Blue Sky USA show. It, it probably would have actually, of course, fit in better on Amazon, where they could have added it to the book-to-screen pipeline that has done pretty good work with uh, Bosch and Jack Ryan and Reacher. I think it would have fit in. Also, if they'd done that, they would have been able to acknowledge that the main character here is half-brothers to Harry Bosch. Instead, Amazon owns the Harry Bosch character very clearly, and thus, Harry Bosch has no part in this. Uh, instead, they've added an alternative detective to take the place. The cast is is pretty good. You have an entirely wasted Nev Campbell as one of the main character's ex-wives. You have a somewhat less wasted Becky Newton as another of his ex-wives. You have Christopher Gorham as a billionaire who's accused of murdering his wife, and his case is the central bland case carrying through the season. It It moves along okay. Just again, the legal stuff is not particularly interesting, and most of the things that are distinctive about the character on the page and were distinctive about the character in the movie are mostly gone. He's kind of just a generic defense lawyer. And so it's not thrilling. On the other hand, I completely and totally understand why there would be an audience for this show. And so, yeah, you know, I've seen I've seen all of it and it's definitely not painfully bad, but nothing particularly works. Uh, I've watched five episodes of the new Kids in the Hall revival on Prime Video, and the simplest way to put my feelings about that is if you liked Kids in the Hall before, you will like this. It is it is sort of they the the kids slide right back into that thing that they do, and they do it fairly well. I've always been tepid on Kids in the Hall personally, and so I found these episodes roughly like the original. I would chuckle at a sketch or two per episode some episodes leave me entire some episodes and sketches leave me entirely cold and others actually made me laugh really hard so it's a mix it is definitely not a disastrous return you definitely don't feel sad because my goodness they're old and they're coming back why are they doing this you, you don't feel that way you you feel as if it's good to have them back if you feel like it's good to have them back and then you just heard our interview with uh, with Stephen Moffat about Time Traveler's Wife. And I guess what I have to say about Time Traveler's Wife is that it's it's a very, very clearly a tough book to adapt. I just don't know that there's any question that things that work on the page do not always work as well on the screen. I personally think it's a it's an improvement over the movie. I, and I think it's an improvement over the movie because Stephen Moffat adds humor to this. And humor allows you to cut some of the things that feel uncomfortable in 
the movie and in the book and that make you go, hmm, that's a little bit sketchy. And, you know, you heard our interview with Stephen Moffat about how he's approaching some of those things. And you can either agree or or not. That's one of those things. I, I chuckled at it and found it completely watchable. And I think that this is a a really good vehicle for Rose Leslie, who has a lot of things to do and very successfully delivers a lot of um, you know, dialogue that has to be high-minded and high-reaching and and sometimes strange. So my ultimate feeling is this is just a tough property to adapt and that the things that don't make you cringe on the page may make you cringe on the screen, but I don't think any of that is introduced in the series. So I think that if you loved one and not the other, I, you know, I don't know what to say, uh, it, this feels like a reasonable adaptation of the book. And so I think that is an interesting thing. And as you just heard, Stephen Moffat had many, many passionate and interesting things to say about the series. And we will see how long it lasts, because as he explained, it's an ongoing show and not a close ended show. So to recap quickly, hacks, unquestionably the best thing of the week, no doubt whatsoever, though, if you are a uh, kids in the hall fan. That new season is on Amazon Prime. Lincoln Lawyer is largely forgettable. That's on Netflix. The Essex Serpent is slow, but well acted. That's Apple. And Time Traveler's Wife, I recommend you listen to our Stephen Moffat interview because it really is a fun one. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for full coverage on the TV front. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Stay tuned to THR.com for more Upfront's coverage. And you can, of course, follow me and Dan on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Helps spread the murder of mouth and all of that. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear from you. Let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments, definitely not next week, but, you know, it'll happen in the future. Maybe can, next week. You never know. I don't know. I feel like next week is going to be largely upfront stuff. So well, let's do an upfront's mailbag. If we get questions, maybe we'll do upfront's mail. Fine. Good point. So if you have questions about upfront's week or really anything else, you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs>